consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Cane, here for you. Visit www.bartoncane.com. ACDC Reads is a one-woman bassoon reed shop in Minnesota run by Ariel Detweiler, producing over 1,200 reeds per year. Selling beginner and advanced level bassoon reeds, ACDC Reads are hailed by customers for their even intonation, ease of response in all registers, warm tone quality, and strong low register. Every reed is made from tube cane processed in-house to Ariel's specifications using Rigotti or Lavaro cane and a Rieger 1A shape. You'll also find bassoon-themed gifts in the shop, including greeting cards, stickers, artistic prints, and the ever-popular Blackwing bassoon pencil. Make sure to follow ACDC Reads on Instagram, where Ariel posts artistic photos and educational stories about her everyday experiences with reed making. ACDC Reads is proud to sponsor Double Read Dish, sharing positive and uplifting interviews to inspire and connect the bassoon community around the world. Find ACDC Reads at acdcreads.com or at retailers like Chemical City Double Reads, Midwest Musical Imports, or Read Supplies Canada. Try out ACDC Reads today and let the read do the work. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Oh, just fine. How are you doing up there? Are you freezing? It's extremely cold today. Like, I know that it's like Washington. So it's like winter. It's always been winter. But today it was like a low of nine degrees. And it hasn't been that much. It's been like 30s. And so I had to go to work today and I stepped out and I was like, oh, good. (laughs) Golly, Miss Molly, that is cold it was not good does it remind you of our time in wisconsin it was a, t- a like wisconsin cold for sure but yeah. we don't get snow here in quite the same way welcome to weather hour where two women in their late 30s discuss the weather what's the weather like where you are dear <laughs> so what's what's new with you yeah, we have some sad news down here in South Mississippi. My longtime predecessor at the University of Southern Mississippi, um, Patty Malone, suddenly and unexpectedly passed away on uh, January 13th, 2023. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to talk about it on the dish because I know a lot of people knew Patty mm-hmm. and I wanted to, you know, talk to all the people who knew Patty because she was such a wonderful person, like just a sweet, kind, hilarious, silly, fantastic person. Well, tell us a little bit about Patty. Like, yeah, what about her career? Well, she started at USM in 1981 and talk about women having a hard time breaking into the workforce especially in higher education uh can you imagine getting a woman getting a tenure track job in applied oboe in 1981 no I I think about the first kind of what we think of as the first generation of full-time women applied professors and I I definitely place it later than that for sure I place it in Mm -hmm. the 90s yeah yeah um she taught a ton of people she was universally beloved um she uh retired from full-time teaching after her 25 years and then continued playing in the meridian and mobile symphony orchestras i think she started in mobile in 2011 and uh she was 
just a force to be reckoned with. She was an extremely prominent figure in the oboe community in the Deep South. Um, She was, her personality was larger than life. She was so funny and so silly. She was the first person to introduce me to the phrase, Lord willing and the creek don't rise. Well, and you've told me in the past, um, I didn't know Patty, but her name was very familiar to me because Mm -hmm. you've told me how supportive she's been of USM and your students, Mm -hmm. even post-retirement, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, she uh, has been incredibly generous with the Oboe Studio. She's donated equipment and music and CDs and money so that we can purchase gouging machines and she has taught for me in weeks that I couldn't be there if I was touring she has come taught the students for a week Um, she also taught freshman theory for a really long time so just about every student at USM had the pleasure of having her for a teacher and they all loved her And the USM Oboe Studio is planning on dedicating our read room to her. It's going to be renamed the Dr. Patty Malone Oboe Read Room. You know, she was just such a wonderful, positive person to have around. I felt like I could go to her for advice um, since she was so experienced and had a really long career. You know, she, this was her last season. She was going to retire after this season in Mobile and Meridian, and then she was going to put the oboe away. So, um, so yeah, this is, it's, it's a very sad transition that we're making, but, um, of course, one that can't be avoided. And I just wanted to send all my love to anyone who's listening who knew Patty and who is mourning her passing we're having a memorial for her um on the usm campus on march 26th and i'm really looking forward to seeing people who knew and loved patty um some things that i will remember her by uh that i will miss very much is that um she was very very tall but it was all in her legs. So when you would sit next to her in orchestra, you'd kind of be the same height and then you'd stand up. Power over you. Like, Patty, it's all in your legs. She's like, I know. (laughs) Um, She used to count on her fingers like a lot, like very obviously. And I remember talking to an audience member once who was saying, I just love watching that Principal Lobo. I see her counting on her fingers. I think she's awesome. (laughs) And she also used to keep time by tapping her feet, but like tapping her heels. And we we sat on risers. So it would make the entire riser shake (laughs) every time she was acting. It was just, she was just the best. Um, She is so beloved and so deeply missed. So if you are out there and you are missing Patty Malone, I just wanted to tell you that I am too. And the USM community is too. And um, we are going to honor her memory. Well, she sounds amazing and may her memory be a blessing. It already is. Well, switching gears a little bit, there's something else exciting, eminent to happen on the USM campus. I'm giving a recital on February 7th at 6 p.m. Central Time, um, which will be live streamed and you can check it out. I hope you will. And I am premiering a solo oboe work by famous composer... (laughs) Dr. Jackie Wilson. Oh my gosh, I hate her works. <laughs> her pieces stink. <laughs> <laughs> this one doesn't. This one's fantastic. Yeah, so the piece is called Sipwe, which is a Sahaptan word. So basically, like, yeah, I wrote my piece Dance Sweet, and it was just kind of like a lark and kind of situational, but I ended up having a ton of fun. And I was like, you know, I think composing will always be maybe be like a hobby or a little thing I do. And I started writing a piece for you. 
and uh, just to kind of like have fun and write for something that's not the bassoon. But I know that I played the oboe, you know, as a hobbyist, not like a real oboist or anything. But I was like, I know enough to know like what's crazy high. I know enough to like not have you enter on a low B flat piano, <laughs> like really delicate, like that type of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and so I thought writing for an instrument that's not the bassoon was kind of like a little fun challenge. And um, yeah, so um, Sipwe is a Sahaptan word, uh, Yakima language, that has like many meanings. It's family, relative, but also like friend or adopted family. And it was just kind of like this uh, multifaceted word um for just basically like the people that we're close to and i decided to like it's a two movement work and enfolded in are all of these references to friendship and uh family or um women's friendships and that type of thing. So there's some uh quotes and that type of stuff maybe we shouldn't give away. Maybe it's like a word search, quote search. <laughs> but um yeah, I'm excited and it was a fun challenge and um you seem to like it. So I we'll love see it. If everyone else does too. But it's cool because it's the first time, you know, I wrote for myself with Dance Suite and then I put it out there and it resonated with people, which is awesome. But this is the first time I've written for someone else. And I'm very uh like I'm so excited. I'm I can't wait to hear you play it and uh yeah, so it's kind of special. Well, I'm not going to be the only person to play it too. Once this once this goes out in the world, you very purposely wrote it for an intermediate level. Mm -hmm. So, and I think you really accomplished that that it's a perfect intermediate level solo oboe piece. I can see a lot of young musicians diving into this piece. Um and uh it's it's beautiful it's accessible it's meaningful i mean the first time you told me the concept i'm pretty sure i burst into tears <laughs> it's not too long i think it's like seven minutes two movements yeah. So. yeah uh and and uh we're going to record the premiere and have it available on jackie's website so that you can listen to it for yourself if you can't watch the live stream and uh, purchase and take to your students and perform yourselves. So, yeah, if you're an oboist and it sparkles, check it out. And uh, if not, it'll just be, you know, Galit's little piece. So I'll tell you what, every time I practice it, I feel so loved. <laughs> I feel like I'm getting a hug from my best friend. It is the best feeling. <laughs> Well, that's better than feeling like you're getting stabbed by your best friend. So I'll take it. <laughs> Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at www.chemicalcityreads.com. Specializing in the finest assortment of oboes, clarinets, bassoons, and their accessories, RDG Woodwinds serves musicians around the world. Their employees are all professional musicians who have a deep knowledge of the products that they sell. RDG's repair shop has an international reputation with a combined 100 plus years of service among the five repair technicians. Plain and simple, RDG provides excellent products and fabulous customer service. Visit them at rdgwoodwinds.com. They look forward to working with you. We are so excited to welcome to the podcast Scott Poole, Associate Professor of Music at Texas A&M Corpus Christi. Welcome, Scott. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here, and uh, I'm really, I'm humbled, I'm honored. So to start, I have a question purely out of left field. Uh -oh. How did you get started playing the bassoon? Oh, that's a good one. Um. 
Well, when I started playing the bassoon, well, when I first started, I started in like uh, sixth grade and I was on, I was a saxophonist and an interesting turn of events. Uh, I almost became a trumpet player because my family that I came from, we didn't have a lot of money or anything. And I, you know, went through the whole line and said, okay, I could, I'd, li- I'd love to play saxophone, um, but it's too expensive. You know, it's, I can't afford that. So I'll play the trumpet. That's a cheap instrument. You know, I can, I can do that. So I was having this talk with my parents and we were with another couple and they said, you know, I think we have a saxophone up in our attic and we're like, Oh, oh my gosh. So, so it opened up this saxophone and it's like years of, uh, it's like a coffin, you know, you're like, <laughs> but I said, okay, I'll, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Cobwebs everywhere, you know? So I got this thing out, started playing it. And it's funny, it was a tenor saxophone and everybody starts on the alto saxophone. So the particular book we were using wasn't set up for tenor saxophone. And in hindsight, looking back, I was like, oh, that would have been easy. I could have done this. But I got to play all these little solos, like the whole band would play. And then I would play my little tenor saxophone solo because it wasn't in the right key. Oops. <laughs> and yeah, exactly. And like I said, in hindsight, you know, it's like, well, why didn't I just play a clarinet part or why didn't he transpose it? Whatever. Anyway, maybe he just liked me. I got to play all these solos. So, so anyway, I was a tenor saxophone player and I started, I, I did that from, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. And then in eighth grade, that's when they started saying, okay, you know, we've got the bassoon, we've got the oboe, we've got the French horn. Um, and I said, I want to play the bassoon. I was very intrigued with it. I don't know why. Never heard the bassoon before, nothing. Uh, I was like, I want to do this. And my band director said, no, you can't do it. I said, why? He goes, your hands aren't big enough. I was like, what? What?" And I was actually pretty, uh, like I was growing faster than my colleagues, you know, my friends. That stopped. And then they, of course, went above me. (laughs) But but, um, no, so... So I was like, what, what is this? And, and I figured out he just wanted to keep me on saxophone because I was the first chair. Because, again, in hindsight, he was the band director that took all these, uh, like, the last chairs and put them on the double reeds, which you would never, ever do. But he took people from the third clarinets and the, you know, the fourth saxophones and all these, <laughs> put them on the double reeds. Um, and, of course, they, they were not so good. But uh, no, he's like, let me let me take all these kids who are struggling with the easier instruments. Exactly. And then we're going to put them on the harder instrument. <laughs> exactly. And and I'll never forget this one guy. And he sat kind of like right in front of me. I was on the saxophone and his name was Bowie Arneson. And I'll never forget little Bowie because Bowie was shorter than I was. And I'm sure his hands were smaller too. And the bassoon was just towering over him and he you know he, he was okay but he never really loved the instrument or anything and so i just sat there and i and i would stare at him all through eighth grade ninth grade 10th grade 11th grade saying man that should be me i should be playing the bassoon but that's okay so did Bowie file a restraining order why is this kid staring at me i'm like ah you know, <laughs> peering down upon him no it, it was like I had a I had a bassoon crush, you know, uh, oh. you know, I had well, I had a bassoon crush. Then, of course, I had the the flute player crush, you know, but that was like the the girl on the other side. You know, I was like, oh, uh-huh. but no, Bowie was my <laughs> was my bassoon crush. And so. So anyway, I got going. I wanted to, you know, uh, what am I trying to say? I, I got going uh, wanting to major in in music in college. I thought, okay, that's what I'm going to do, and uh, I I got I was heavy into jazz at the time, and so I was going to go to this school and be a jazz saxophonist, uh, as a as a music education major. So I was going to be a music education major, focusing on jazz saxophone, and I got hooked up with some lessons uh, with the college recruiter, and he said, you know, you're a pretty good saxophonist, but we really need some bassoon players, you know, would you ever consider, you know, and I was like, of course. (laughs) So, so I, so I told my, uh, my band director who actually happened to be the same band director, like he got a promotion. So when I went to high school, he got a promotion and became the high school director too. 
So, so it's the same band director. So I said, finally, I said, look, this, this college guy wants me, this professor wants me to play bassoon. Can I play bassoon? He goes, okay, sure. So I got a bassoon and I started playing. And of course I, you know, I fell in love with it and it helped me get into college. You know, I got a little better scholarship than I would have before. Um, and so that's how I started playing the bassoon, but it was somewhere in my junior year of college when I started my, uh, my field observations and such, I was playing a lot and I was getting a lot of gigs on saxophone, but I was also getting a lot of gigs on, on bassoon. And I quickly found out that I was pretty good as a saxophonist, but there are all these people that were so much better than I was. Um, but on bassoon, I was actually doing much better than, than the other others. And I was getting more, more uh, quality and quantity gigs on the bassoon than I was on the saxophone. So I kind of flipped over a little bit. And at the same time, I, I was uh, doing, like I said, my field observations. uh, And I realized that I didn't really want to do education anymore at least at that level. I, I I definitely still wanted to teach, but the junior high public school level, I was like, I, I just don't think that this is the right fit for me. And so I flipped over from being a music education jazz saxophonist to a bassoon performance major, which haunted me for about ah, a good six, seven years, you know, but. What do you mean? The ghosts of your of your jazz. Well, I, I and I tell people I said, you know, I I walk, you know, depending on who I'm around, I say, well, you know, I'm. You got to understand, I'm a, I'm a recovering saxophonist. You know, all the sax jokes <laughs> that's coming. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, but no, it's it, it's it's something that's very dear to my heart, and and I still love uh, playing jazz, and uh, every once in a while I'll pull out the saxophone. Can we hear about um, what happened after you decided to pursue bassoon performance, you know, embarking on your life as a professional, your training educational journey, how you got to where you are today? Well, I I tell you, I, when I was in college, uh, my undergrad degree, I, again, I I knew that I wanted to teach. I, I, I enjoyed teaching, but that level was, was just not my cup of tea. And for some people, it they love it, you know. And I was glad that I said, you know, I I don't think I would be really doing a good job at 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 the public school level. But I noticed my professors having just a it seemed like it seemed like they were just having a great time, you know. Like uh, especially my bassoon professor and the horn professor, they were buds. And it's like, oh, you ready to go for coffee? Okay, we'll go for coffee. And they and they. They seemed like they really loved their jobs. And so I thought, well, I might want to think about pursuing this direction. Um, And then I was, of course, playing more bassoon and I flipped over to be a a performance major and I was getting into all the literature. I I got my stagio book and I was reading all through all the excerpts and everything. And um, around that time, the guy that I was studying with he was actually uh, the clarinet professor and he had done bassoon on the side. Um, so he was teaching me bassoon, but it was pretty quick when he said, look, I think you need to go study with somebody else because, you know, you're, you're taking this very seriously now. And so that's when I started studying with Carl Rath at uh, University of Oklahoma when he was there. Um, so it was about my junior year of my undergrad. I would finish up where I was at, at the University of Central Oklahoma. And I would drive down to Norman once a week to take bassoon lessons and so I kind of do some dual credit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I ended up going to my master's down there as well. Um, but that's when I started getting really serious about it, you know, playing in the orchestra and just loving that sound, uh, you know, coming from bands and especially sitting in jazz bands all the time, uh, that the orchestra sound was so different to me. And it was just a special, special sound. Then I started getting into chamber music and chamber groups, and and I was like, wow, this is just a, a lovely instrument. It's a lovely voice. Uh, this is kind of where I belong. And so I just kept on pursuing and pursuing, and you know, we persevere and we we try all these things. We do what we're supposed to do, and 
some things that we're not supposed to do. And <laughs> uh, then there's this element of luck and you get lucky sometimes. And I've been able to get lucky in a few different places that, you know, you go from here to here to here to here and, and it, and it ends up working out. So you decided to go into college teaching and yeah. you are a very experienced college teacher and you also are into chamber music and recording and um, performing. So it seems like you could have gone in many different directions and higher ed was the thing that has kept you, you know, interested and engaged. What is, what is it about teaching at the college level that you find um, fulfilling and appealing and what do you think your students will leave your studio if they had one thing that they could say, I studied with Scott Poole and he taught me this, what would it be? <laughs> How to make a read? Yeah? <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh gosh, I don't know. I think it I think maybe it's be flexible, you know, and embrace diverse uh styles. You know, oh, that's what I was going to say. I'm remembering way back now. Hmm. I said that it it haunted me. You know, the saxophone had haunted me for 6 or 7 years and you had asked a question about that throughout my master's degree and into my doctoral degree, I uh I still played saxophone and I played in the jazz bands and stuff. And I almost had to hide that from, from people. My bassoon professors did not like that very much. And I remember getting uh, comments on some of my sheets and, and things that you sound like a saxophonist trying to play bassoon, you know, and, you know, I, I took that pretty seriously and eventually it kind of flipped over where um, I could, you know, kind of separate the two, but I'll tell you, in our current climate of of styles and such, I am so thankful that I had that training in the jazz world that had opened my my ears up to not just jazz but uh, Latin American music, South American music, uh, African music, uh, music with really intricate rhythm. Uh, all of those things I draw from. When I'm playing, you know, things like uh, I, I was just looking at the uh, Piquito de Rivera uh, quintet mm -hmm. and and some other pieces. Oh, I'm playing Miguel uh, de Laguila's music. You know, you kind of have to have experience with those styles uh, in order to to pull them off. And really what, like I said, haunted me for a while, I think has turned out turned out to be a really good thing in my background. And so. To back to your other question about, you know, what's the one thing that, a you know, one of my students, I would hope to say that you don't have to put yourself in a box like you used to, you know, mm -hmm. again, back in the nineties and even mm -hmm. in the 2000s, it's like, why are you even listening to jazz? Why are you, why are you listening to anything except Brahms or Mahler or, you know, mm -hmm. and if you're not doing anything, you, that should be your 100% focus. And if you're listening to anything else, that's that's a bad thing. But now I think we we've learned to embrace that. First of all, not everybody's going to have a job in uh, a symphony orchestra. And even if you do get a job in a symphony orchestra, those orchestras are now starting to play a variety of different styles. And if you don't have some sort of a background in that, then you you're gonna you know say okay we got to swing this, you know, or we have, we have to play in a, a in a, a, a samba style. Mm -hmm. you say, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> you know, you're going to be at a disadvantage. And so in my studio, excuse me, we, um, we try to approach different styles. I mean, yeah, you still learn the same excerpts and that kind of stuff too, but we, we do a lot of pop music. We do a lot of uh, uh, different culture music uh to to try and and open their ears to different things and sometimes the students you know they uh open my ears uh there's a piece i've been playing recently uh the past two or three years that i just love and that's the the jorge mockert suite 
the Sweet Argentina. Um, mm -hmm. And it's just such a beautiful piece of music. Well, a student introduced that to me. Amazing. Uh, I, mean, I had heard it once. Uh, Leah uh, Ariba played it uh, at a conference one time. And I thought, oh, it's a nice piece of music. I'll put it on my list. <laughs> uh, but then a student brought it to me. And he said, can I play this? Can I play this piece of music? And I said, oh, sure. I've, I've heard of it before. Ended up being a beautiful, beautiful piece. And uh, I mean, you really have to be invested in the style in order to pull it off. So, but um, I'll, I'll tell you from the very, very beginning, when I say beginning, you know, in my college years, my undergrad years, um, my dream had always been, I want to have a professor job and then play in a part-time orchestra. I mean, that's kind of my, that was my big dream, you know? So I never had a huge goal to go and be principal of the New York Phil or, or anything like that. And I've, you know, I've had a few orchestra positions and, uh, you know, but I've never taken a lot of, I've never been on the audition circuit, you know, mm -hmm. taking audition after audition, after audition, after audition. Um, if one comes up, that's local, that's within driving distance, I say, I'll, you know, I'll go take it. But, uh, but that's never been my goal. My goal has always been to, to do this job. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then at some point I could say in my education, I fell in love with chamber music. And so that's become just a huge part of my life as well. And having this job enables me to have the freedom to do a lot of chamber music. You mentioned that one of the things you hope your students learn from you is how to make a read. Um, <laughs> so can we hear a little bit about the nerdy stuff, your setup, your shape, your approach to read making, and then also, you know, habits or advice that you've learned along the way as a read maker? Well, that's difficult. <laughs> it's difficult because it's it's one of these things where I, and I tell my students this too, here's what I do. Don't do what I do. <laughs> do this first, and then eventually, hopefully you get to this spot you know, where I am right now. And the spot where I am right now is, it, it. it's almost like it makes no sense, you know, but let's talk a little bit about, you know, how I got to this spot. So, I started, I, I had an interest in remaking from uh, pretty early on. Uh, I got really lucky again, and um, I had won this little competition in uh, Oklahoma City, and it paid 500 bucks, and I thought, great. I mean, that was a lot of money. I mean, it's still a lot of money, but it was a lot of money in 1992, three, something like that. And I took the entire wad of cash, and I bought all my remaking stuff. Mm. and so i started kind of and, and it was largely self-taught uh through the i used the popkin glickman book and just kind of went you know read that thing cover to cover and tried to dissect all the information and you know ingest it as much as i could tried a lot of stuff and so i just started making reads and then of course i got some tutelage in my master's degree and my doctoral degree and such but even as my uh one of my masters uh i took a uh what do they call them? Uh, independent studies. I took an independent study on read making and I tried all these different people's different approaches. And so I, I don't remember who they were right now, but it's been a long time ago, but I tried like five or six different approaches and said, okay, well, this, this is what yields this result and this result. And, da, 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 da. and if I do this to the read, so I learned all these little things here and there. And I developed kind of my own method of read making. And then in my doctoral degree, this book came out with the Lou Skinner book. Uh, uh, McKay, I think is his name that uh, put, put it together. But this whole, and that kind of opened up my whole, my world into a whole different way of thinking. I basically was putting my reads together, say like step one, two, three, four. And the way Skinner would do it, it reversed everything. And so I start, I was going four, three, two, one. <laughs> and so even today, I, I put my reads together a little bit backwards than a lot of people. Um, and that's fine. It, it works for me. But I started doing that. And my advice is to, you know, find a general shape that you like, work on that shape and start making great reads out of that shape, you know, and hopefully you have a teacher that can help you along with it and, you know, 
say, ah, oh, no, that's too skinny or that's too wide or it's too long or, you know, and so you kind of figure out something that you're pretty good at and then you get really good at it and just that one shape and, you know, you're doing everything. Then you start to branch off into all these different shapes. And so this place that I am now, I, I, I should give you a picture or something. I got like 25 different shapers that I use. And if you look at my reed box, there are reeds that are long and short, and wide and skinny and all, all different flavors. Um, so, like I said, I do not recommend that for, for somebody starting out. But in my position, you know, I might have to play chamber music today. I might have to play second bassoon in the orchestra next week. I might have to play a solo recital uh, in two weeks and I might, I might get called to play a principal job somewhere. I, you know, so I have all these different roles that I have to, to, to fit into. And at any given time, I've got a read that will work for that situation. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just, I still do a lot of experimenting and I've given myself kind of a, when I reach this age, I'm going to stop and just play one read <laughs> that's it <laughs> don't you ask me what age that is delete <laughs> i i can see it in your yes i can see you thinking <laughs> no but uh but until that day comes i'm just going to keep on experimenting and you know kind of see and what i've learned from this is you know there's a lot of I guess I wouldn't call them myths. There's a lot of truth to some of the myths that we have, but a lot of the stuff that we, that we look at as far as reads go and we say, Oh, well, this is, this is too, too straight or this is too warped or this is too thick or this is too thin or this is too mealy or this is, eh. you could play on just about anything if you know how to manipulate the cane and, uh, and you can make it work for you. Um, again, kind of growing up with not a lot of money, I, I won't throw a read away. And so a lot of people, my philosophy reads is a lot of people will make a hundred reads and they hope that 10 of them work, you know, so that's about a 10% return. I like to make 10 reads and make nine of them work. So that's more like a 90% return. Uh, because again, I, you know, if I pay, what is it like? I think a piece of cane is like up to six dollars, six fifty, something like that. And I, I don't want to throw away six bucks every time just because I, you know, I do it. I, I shave it down. Ah, oh, this is terrible. Throw it away. Throw it away. You know. Mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and and I, you know, I I kind of try to get my students to do that as well. It's like don't just throw it away. Let's see what, if we can make it work. You know. So. Yeah, that's something that um, actually Erin often I have talked about a lot. Um, she has a similar perspective. And, and for me, it ultimately, you know, segues easily into a decolonial approach to read making that respecting that this thing was once alive. And that yeah, just because yeah. it doesn't suit our purpose, doesn't entitle us to just throw it away and say, oh, you have no use to me. Therefore, you know, it's, I, I get to disregard you. Like, um, <laughs> and you know, her read making is, is very similar of like, how can yeah. I respond to who you are to learn what I can from you, whether that's helping a student or, you know, helping myself or whatever it is. Um, but I would love to hear, you know, that kind of segues nicely into you grow Arundo Donax, right? Can we hear about <laughs> all of that? I don't even know where to begin. Like, tell us about that. Well, I don't actually grow it myself. Now, there are some people that do. Um, but what got me interested in harvesting the, the Arundo is uh, when I moved to Texas, I noticed it growing wild when I was living up in North Texas. Uh and it would have these little spots here and there, sometimes along the side of the road. And you'd see these little, I wouldn't call it a grove. I don't know what you call it. Just a little crop, you know, maybe 12, 15 pieces. But then there was, uh, we would drive down to uh, San Antonio every year for the uh, Texas Music Educators Convention. And on the way down, I found this huge forest of Arundo Donax. 
And I thought, wow, then that's got to be something special. So I did my research. Most of it is uh, from Mark Eubanks, his website. He has a ton of great information on uh, harvesting, when to harvest, how to harvest, how to dry it, all that kind of stuff. And it's really great. Um, And then I learned a lot from an oboist. Do you know uh, Neil Tapman? who used to teach at Arizona. He was over on the West Coast. And he and I were talking about it. And I said, well, I learned all this stuff from Mark Eubanks' website. Da, da, da. He goes, oh, I told Mark everything he knows. <laughs> so so I was like, oh, great. Well, let's talk about reeds and stuff. How do you, because he would harvest for his oboe cane. And so luckily here in Texas, there are a variety of spots where the crane goes grows very well. It also grows in uh, California quite a bit. The pe- there are people, Dave Wells, um, uh, Steve Bronstein, they go out in uh, the California Bay Area where it grows. And then it also grows along the Rio Grande quite a bit. I was I did a trip to Big Bend a couple of years ago, and there was just enormous fields of it all over the, the Rio Grande River. Unfortunately, none of it was of proper diameter, and that's where it gets tricky. So... People, a lot of people, when when we talk about it, they think you just go out and grab a piece of cane off the side of the road. And you, <laughs> you, that's sort of true. But you, what you have, have to do is you have to go through and you kind of have to sift through the field and, you know, look through and find these pieces that have ideal diameter. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that I learned is, so the cane has to be at least two years old and it has to be a certain diameter. And what I found is once it reaches that diameter, it's very, very close to dying. In other words, you have to have that kind of a special window of time because, in other words, it doesn't just keep on growing. You know, once it reaches that special diameter, then if you come back the next year, it's probably going to be dead. So you've got this little window of time to grab some cane and... There are are magical times when you can go out during the the winter. You have to go in the dormant season and then you have to go by the, 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 well, not the light of the moon, but the darkness, I guess, of the new moon, Uh, all kinds of fun stuff there. So then you go out and and you, you find your ideal pieces, you chop them down, and then they have to cure for two years. And so this batch is... It's ready to be, the reason it's in my office is that it's uh, ready to be chopped up into individual tubes. And so, but it's been sitting there for two or three years now. And so when I first started, it was really, it, it was like, oh, I can't wait two years. I can't wait. I can't wait. But I had to make myself wait. And now, so when I go out and I harvest, say in January, um, I've got, I've got cane that I harvested two years ago that's already ready to go. And so it's kind of now I've got a cycle of cane that's going on. And I I think it's great cane. You know, it's it's a little it doesn't have this golden, beautiful color to it that a lot of cane that, that we do that we use has, which got me to thinking that there's so much. I think that we when we choose cane and when we look at cane, and we go to buy cane and stuff. There's this aesthetic quality that we're looking at that really has nothing to do with the way it plays. And I've seen cane that is just absolutely beautiful and it doesn't play well at all. Mm-hmm. And then I have, I've, I've used cane that doesn't look so good. You know, there's no way you could sell it because you know nobody would buy this stuff. It looks terrible, but the cane, the sound is beautiful and it's, you know, vibrant, and, you know, wonderful. So there's a lot of this stuff where I'm thinking, you know, how much are we, just looking at the aesthetics of the cane and judging it that way and instead of giving it now i can see the parallels here you know where give this poor little ugly reed a chance (laughs) oh you're a little you got a little dark spot that's okay let's see how you can play (laughs) where where i'm a very inclusive reed maker so (laughs) yeah yeah i get it But yeah, it's just, you know, so much of it is, uh, you know, what I've learned is that even if you follow every single, you know, guideline of choosing your cane, 
that still doesn't mean that it's going to be a good read. Right. And some of those reads that don't match all the guidelines, or the, I should say that some of those pieces of cane that people throw away, or they say, oh, I'll put this in the discard pile. Those could actually be really great pieces of cane. And so another reason that I go out and I harvest much more than what I need is so that I can give it to my students. And so they don't have to pay for cane, which is great. You know, and I say, here's, I give them about 15, 20 pieces at a time and say, go make some reads. And they don't have to spend a bunch of money to do it. Is Arundo Donax uh, a sustainable foraging target? Is it, do you know if it's, um, what's the word? Invasive. Is it an invasive species? Should we go out there foraging for Arundo Donax? Well, if if you're out there chopping it down yourself, you're doing somebody else a favor. (laughs) Because yes, it's an invasive species. And that, you know, uh, Dale Clark in Arkansas, he he actually planted some, and he's grown some, and and he so I think he's had some really good success with it, um, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I would hate to be your neighbor, you know, <laughs> because at some point that stuff is gonna grow and spread, and it you cannot control it. And it's, it's, yeah, it's an invasive species. You know, the state of California has been, has gone to great lengths to try to get rid of it because it chokes out the water supply. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so it, it, and there's an interesting bit of information that I think would be cool here for the podcast and stuff that I read um, is that the reason it grows so well or that it, there's so much of it in the Rio Grande Valley is that it was planted there by the government way back around World War II. I forget if it was World War I or World War II, but they started this planting in order to, for it to be a sustainable source of uh, fiber. You can cut this stuff down and you know grind it down to a pulp and you can make clothing out of it. You can make all mm. kinds of things out of it. And so as America was really concerned, like, what if we lose the war? You know, we're going to be cut off from all these sources of, you know, you know, materials. A Rondo Donuts can be used as, you know, like I said, you can make clothes out of it. You can make materials out of it. You can, it, when you grind it and into a pulp, it can be used for all kinds of different things. So that's why they planted it, but it got way out of control. Hmm. And so, yeah, it's, it, it's an invasive species, but as long as I can see pieces out there on the side of the road <laughs> and I have my own special grove here in Corpus Christi. When I say special, I mean, I don't own it, but it's a little, it's a little park and there's, it's one of the largest groves I've ever seen. And so I go out there every year and take five or six pieces from it. Um, but the other, the other thing that makes it good in Texas, that is the wind. And Corpus Christi is like one of the windiest cities ever uh, in the United States. And so this wind that comes off the bay and off the ocean, uh, it helps strengthen the cane. And so you want that. There was a, there's a thread about somebody who said, oh, I'm going to start growing a Rundo Donax in my, uh, I've got a space in my home. And they said, well, you know, it grows to like 20 feet or so. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I've already planned for that. <laughs> but you have to have the wind. The wind has to be there, you know, in order to help it get strength and flexibility. The flexibility is a big thing too. Before we get off that topic, there, I, I'm going to tempt you, Jackie. There are a few things I didn't tell you. Secrets of the trade. And the only way you can learn them is to come down to Corpus Christi <laughs> and go on a, go on a uh, cane harvest with me. I'll take what, you. What, am I not invited? Guy. No. <laughs> Y'all just got little tubes. Yeah. <laughs> the I have found that the oboists are very, very picky. Like No. Shocker. I know. I know. I, know. I, I don't <laughs> believe and, it. You're and, out of line here. And dare I dare I say it a little bit snotty when it comes to choosing their cane. I am shocked, <laughs> offended, and 
<laughs> in disbelief. You, that would also, never come from an old voice, right? <laughs> I'm also not the biggest fan of wandering around in groves, so I'll leave you two to it. Oh. You do have to wear uh, strong boots uh, for the snakes. Snakes! <laughs> and spiders. Oh, God. And yeah, critters. You guys have a great time. <laughs> okay. Enough about reeds. <laughs> Can we hear about your album of unaccompanied pieces for solo bassoon? Sure. What do you want to know? Um, tell us about the process, selecting repertoire, all that good stuff. Oh, God. the That, that was actually one of the hardest parts about the whole project because uh, I wanted to do, uh, in my mind, I have this series of projects. And I'm on this. I'm on part two right now, and that's uh, the next album. And so the first album was going to be unaccompanied. The next one is duets, trios, quartets, quintets. You know, just configurations of you know one, two, three, four, five instruments. So I started with unaccompanied, and um, going through the repertoire, the, those were the hardest decisions because it was like, wow, how can I? put this on and not put this on. And my decisions came, you know, kind of worked their way down to, I didn't want to make recordings of things that were already out there and recorded a bunch, you know, nobody needs to hear me play another, you know, of this piece, <laughs> you know, um, and, but there are some standards and the standards that I chose to put on there I thought were, okay, here are some pieces that need some updating. You know, like uh, I'm thinking of, I, th I think it's Schoenbach. I think it's, I'd have to go back and look, but I think there's this fabulous recording of Schoenbach playing the, uh, uh, the Wilson Osborne Rhapsody. And there are a few other really fine recordings, but recording technology has really changed in the past, you know, 40, 50 years. <laughs> and so I thought that that was a piece that needed an update, you know, uh, not to say here's my rendition of it, but you know, it's like, okay, well, let's hear what that piece could have sounded like with modern recording technology. Um, so there are a few standards on the album. Um, and then there are some pieces that are little known, I guess. And then there are a few pieces that were uh commissions that I did. So I tried to make a, a mix of all those. Um, instead of having a piece that's just all pieces that uh, that I commissioned, eh, nobody wants to hear that. So, and then if it's a piece of all standards, uh, I don't know if, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to be judged too harshly. You know? uh, and then, so I tried to get a mix of, of, of pieces to put on it. And then, you know, when I started looking at, okay, how's this going to flow? Because that's another thing that I'm I'm still of the generation and of the belief that, you know, when I was a kid listening to cassette tapes, I would start from the beginning and go all the way to the end, you know. And so envisioning this uh, this kind of album as a true album that it's not just a bunch of pieces thrown on a piece. It, it's got an arc to it that goes from the beginning to the very end. And so a lot of pieces that didn't make the cut, it's not that they weren't good pieces, but they, it's like, how is that going to fit into the whole texture of the thing? And then the another th one other thing that I did was I said, well, you know, I, I want the public to have a say too. So I put out a poll on Facebook and I said, what is a piece that an unaccompanied piece that you feel should go on this album like nope it's either under recorded or people need to know about this piece and you know it's it, it hasn't been recorded something like that and so i got all these nice uh responses back lots of pieces pieces i hadn't heard before uh and then i we kind of narrowed it down to two or three and i think i put a vote out and said okay out of these two or three pieces which one would you want to see and the piece that got chosen with that one was libby larson's uh jazz variations mm -hmm. and I was so glad to have uh, discovered this piece, discovered it for myself, you know, because a lot of other people already knew about it. And they said, this is becoming a new standard in our repertoire. And I thought, well, I don't know this piece at all. You know, 
let me check it out. So I was so glad that people had recommended it to me and that um, they thought that it was worthy of, you know, publication to where people, to a broader audience. And uh, I, I love the piece. It's great. So, yeah. <laughs> well, first of all, I love the idea of one instrument and then two instruments and then three and then four. It's very liggety and I love it. <laughs> um would you share with us a favorite memory of a past performance i have two uh one is very old and one is very recent um because i i think it shows just how important this thing that we do with music is is really it's such a special, special thing that we do. My first performance, I wasn't even playing. And I was sitting in the middle of the orchestra and we were on tour. Uh, and this was when I was in an undergrad in college. I think our orchestra was pretty good, but I mean, it wasn't great. It's a college level orchestra, you know. But I sat there and they were playing Barber's Adagio for Strings. And I was just sitting there listening, you know, because we didn't have time to move the stage or anything. Like I said, we were on tour. It was tight setting. We had to go from one piece to the other. So all the winds just sat there while the strings played this piece of music. And so I just sat there and we had gone out and done some college age things the night before and in the hotel. And you know, I'm just kind of sitting there half tired. And <laughs> this sound just overwhelmed me of these strings and the, the floor was vibrating and and they were all together and it and i mean i i thought to myself oh my gosh here you have an incredibly moving piece of music but then also i've got the best seat in the house i mean i'm sitting in the middle of the orchestra and all these strings are around me and the sound is going everywhere and it was just this incredibly moving mo moment for me, for me that makes the whole musical career make uh, sense. You know, that I'd say a good 80 to 90% of what we sit through is, it's good, it's it's fine, but it's not, uh, you know, <laughs> it's not that kind of great. But this was great, uh, at least to me. Now, if I were the age that I am now listening to that, I would probably say, oh, well, the violas are out of tune and, well, the basses miss that entrance and, yeah, you start to, you know. But at that time in my life when my experiences were not huge, that was a huge thing for me. And the older I get, the more I really think about that with younger students is that when they say something's really, really great, we don't want to correct them, you know, because we know that, okay, yeah, maybe it is. Or, but in their mind, that may be the greatest thing that they've ever played. And if they have that kind of experience, you know, that they can think about and, and look back on it, you know, 20 years later and say, I just, that, that performance was so meaningful to me. Then I think we need to let them have that because it's 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 so important to them and as they get older they'll you know you get a little bit pickier and you start to hear other performances that are even better and so you know maybe it lessens that one but still now the second part of that that question is something that just happened to me this past summer and it wasn't a performance but it was a rehearsal for a performance and i was in mexico playing for this festival and uh, I was playing this piece of music that was very, very, very t meaningful to me, touching. Uh, and it, it's a, the John Steinmetz Sonata. It was interesting listening to his podcast that you guys did of how he created that piece. And it's almost like, almost, I don't want to say for sure, but almost as if it happened by accident in the way that he put it together. You know, uh, I know it's, much more complicated than that but to have this piece of incredibly great depth um and to how hear how he well i thought about doing this and that and this and that and well wow what you put together was this and 
incredibly powerful piece of music. And so I'm rehearsing it. And there's a part in the music where it comes to a big hit. You know, it's the end of the second movement and it ends with great power. And then the third movement is very poignant. And this pianist was just kind of, she wasn't quite getting it, you know, and I said, well, you know, we need to, don't, don't listen to me. You just play and you just, you know, and I'll listen to you and we'll, we'll make it work. And we started playing. I said, okay, this, this is a good feeling. This is, this is nice. Okay. This is working. It's really working. I look over and she's just crying. She's just, I mean, her, her tears are just rolling down her face. And, and we kept up and, and I'm playing and I started crying a little bit too. And I was just like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, and at the end, you know, we came and just embraced each other. And, and I was like, yes, that's what this piece is about. And that's what we have to give to the audience. And we played it that night and we didn't quite get to the level of emotion that we had in the practice room, but it was still just a very, very powerful piece. And it's the one piece that I'll play where, you know, you look out in the audience and people are crying and I've never been able to do that before. So that's, that's a, it's a memorable piece that, you know, it happens multiple times, but that one rehearsal that we did this summer was just another one of those moments where you're, where you think to yourself, yeah, this is why we do it. This is why we go through the bad reads. This is why we practice. This is why we, you know, crack on these notes and tell ourselves that we're terrible, <laughs> you know, and we go back in the room and question why we're doing this. And uh, then we get on stage and things like that happen. And we realize, okay, this is why we're doing this. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, those are my golden moments. <laughs> they are few and far between. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Learning how to be flexible and how to just kind of roll with the punches and and stick with it and understand that I think today we are in a very interesting place where there is so much positivity, which is a good thing. It's a great thing. But it can also get to a point where people do need to be uh, expect. How do I say it? As my professor once said, <laughs> Will Dietz, uh, he had this expression and he was from, from Pennsylvania. So I never really understood this expression. But being from Pennsylvania, maybe what he said, he said, you have to be ready for bear. And I was like, you mean like bear, like a like a grizzly bear, like, you know, it, you have to be ready for bear, just be ready for bear. And so I was like, okay, okay, great. But what it means, I think is, is that be ready for people to be mean to you. Mm -hmm. And that's gonna happen at some point in your career. And try to have the confidence that, and, and, you know, uh, the, I wouldn't say confidence, but know that in your training and in, and in your background that you that you can do this and that when those points of adversity come up just you got to try to be the better person and just you know take it with a grain of salt go back you know if somebody says man you, you're just really out of tune you don't know how to play your instrument da, 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 da. yeah go cry for a little bit <laughs> but then you know was that person having a bad day you know, why did they, why were they so mean to me? Why, you know, are they just a mean person? Maybe that's it too. Maybe they're biased against me for some reason or whatever, but try not to let it soak into your, your being and, you know, take what people say, go practice a little more and come back and try to, you know, just, just keep at it. Um, and, you know, cause I'll tell my students too, I'll say, look, you know, there are some people that are going to be mean to you in in your career and you've got to be able to cope with that in some way and not everything is going to be uh rosy and not everybody's going to tell you that you're the fat, most fabulous bassoonist they've ever heard you know in fact they're going to be quite critical of you sometimes and we have to be able to learn to take that criticism and and again with a grain of salt 
you know, if it's if it's aimed at you in kind of a hateful manner, uh, maybe look into what that person is. You know, is that person, you know, like I said, are they having a bad day? Are they are they insecure themselves? You know, which is often the case. Um, but just take it, try to move on as best you can. The other thing I would say to young, let's say, aspiring uh, people who want, say, my job, uh, college professor is find a secondary area that you're really good at because the job of bassoon professor or oboe professor where that's the only thing you do is i mean they exist but the people that get those jobs are usually the ones that have jobs already you know and then if you're wanting to get into the game find something that you're really great at as a secondary area, like music appreciation, like theory, uh, oral skills. Uh, maybe you play a little keyboard. Um, what else can you teach at that university in order to help fill your job? You know, because that has saved my life more than one occasion. Mm -hmm. And I developed a real, I guess, passion for teaching, uh, general studies, you know, things like music appreciation, classes full of non-majors, you know, and it's, it's been an extremely fulfilling part of my life, of my job. And had it not been for me to kind of think forward when I was going into this whole thing, that I might want to have a second, I wouldn't say a backup at all, but a second area where I can become marketable. And it's it's really helped. So much fantastic advice. Scott, this has been a wonderful hour talking with you. Can We're you not over. over. Are we over? No. Oh. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us on Double Read Dish. Well, thank you both. Again, it's I'm really humbled. It's an honor. for joining us for this episode please also join us on social media and if you wouldn't mind rating and reviewing on itunes it helps us reach even more listeners galit who's going to be joining us for our next episode we had the pleasure of speaking with viola Wilmsen, principal oboe of the deutsche symphony orchestra berlin and we had an amazing chat that i cannot wait to share with all of you jackie it's time to end this nerd parade Homemake reads. Lord willing and the creek don't rise.